Well, good morning, Community Church. That time has come upon us where we get the privilege and the honor of honoring and worshiping our King. Why don't we stand to our feet this morning? Isn't it good to be in the house of God? This morning, let's choose to put all of our attention on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's choose to honor him. Let's choose to give him worship that would be worthy of his name. Let's choose to dig deep today and to just give him all of our praise. And so, Father God, we come to you right now and we say, have your way in this place. We say, Holy Spirit, would you come and move amongst us? We say, would you speak to each one that walks through the doors? We say today that we choose to honor you because you are a good God. We choose to say today that you are a loving God, and we choose to honor you through that. Today we say you are an amazing God, a beautiful God, a God that provides everything we need. Today we choose to honor and worship you because you are worthy of praise. So this morning, let's raise our hands, let's lift our voice, let's declare the praises of our Lord, let's begin to worship our King. Come on, let's pull hard. God, we want more of you. Lord, we want to say we want more. We want more of what you have. We want to pull on the cords of heaven. We want to say with all of our being, Lord, your kingdom come and none other. Your dominion come and none other. Lord, Make clear, distinguish in us the difference between what comes from above and what comes from below. We pray in Jesus' name. You know, it's it's a fantastic thing that we are all individuals, autonomous. And we can come to agreement by sharing a a knowledge and deciding what we're going to do in a moment. But it's amazing to me how the Holy Spirit causes an alignment to come. This moment we're in, we're, we're asking for an anointing from heaven. It's more significant than you know. I'm going to talk this morning in a minute about a counterfeit to the anointing, a counterfeit to the oil of heaven, something that that deceives and causes us to pull not from above but from beneath because God is preparing a people who are going to participate in bringing heaven to earth. It's the reason we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But it's more than a prayer. 
It's a disposition, it's an orientation, it's a love, it's a passion. It's a desire that's fixed and focused in the right direction. So, Father, we want to say, Lord, teach us, God. Come, circumcise our hearts, cut off every dependency that is not on your sustenance, your life. Well, so good to have so many of you back from your Christmas endeavors. We, we, are, we are on a journey here, and uh, um, I, I'm so excited about the word this morning because on Friday we had a prayer meeting, and the Lord began to open up some things. And as he was opening these things up, some things uh, became so clear to me and I just, I just love it. But I, I, I want to share today, and I do actually have a theme and a title, which uh, I'll share in a minute, but I, I, I've got it on a different page here. Uh, last week, during one of the prayer meetings, I read from a book, and uh, it was about, uh, the name of the book is called The Final Quest, and it had to do with a, a vision that Rick Joyner had had when he was describing what, was, what God had showed him was an encounter between Satan's end-time army and the army that the Lord is raising up. So I want to say this to you, that you are the army that the Lord is raising up today. Can you say, not very much enthusiasm, you are the army that the Lord is raising up. But here's the thing, the Bible says, Many are called, but few are chosen, right? And so the army of the Lord, maybe, maybe it's divided up into different divisions, I don't know. But, you know, maybe like a normal army, there's the special forces. Special forces are the elite fighters. These are the ones who, uh, you know, tend to be sent into the most dangerous situations. You know, if you're a wise military commander, you're going to, you're going to, take and task your very best soldiers with the most, most pivotal battles there are. And how many of us want to be important to God in that respect, eh? So our importance, our ability, our availability to God is based on something here that maybe we don't understand. It ba- based on this, it, it's based on our inability to be available to Satan. <laughs> Actually, actually, this is what qualifies you as being a servant of God because to the degree that you're one, you're not the other. And to the degree that you're the other, you're not the one. And so what, what is happening, what we're doing, what we're doing here in Community Church is we're training you to not be available to the kingdom of darkness, right? And so that's, that's what we're trying to create in us. And there's so many ways to tabulate, to measure, to illustrate this. And uh, I don't want to spend all my time this morning illustrating this, but I need to start somewhere, so I'm going to start with this. But I was, I was thinking about our worship this morning. And when we're worshiping, Father, I just pray right now, God, as, as we begin, I break the power of that mnemonic tyranny that encamps over us. And I pray right now that that, that cocooning of that spirit of darkness that has, uh, that has tried to undermine your work in our life, 
You've worked in marriages. You've worked in uh, work situations. You've worked in this church in, in destroying relationships. I say in the name of Jesus, you will not prevail against the promise of God and what God said he was going to do with this people. So we counter, we come against, we resist the, uh, the strategies of darkness. And we say, God, we invite you to prune our hearts today. Can you say amen? amen. You know, uh, this is the way believers are defined. It's in uh, John chapter 7, I think. Jesus said, he that believes out of his innermost being will flow Rivers of living water, okay? So this is what believers are. There are people out of whom flow a river. There is an overflow, and that overflow is something good. It's something life-giving. It's something precious. It's something wonderful. It, it's origin. It may have characteristics, and it can be mimicked or imitated, but its characteristics are essentially this, that they originate with God. And so being born again is essentially this. God has connected you to the source of life. And being a believer is bringing forth that, that stuff. Now, it's not as easy as it's cut out to be. It's great to say, hard to do. And when I say it's hard to do, it's hard for all of us to do. It was hard for the original Christians, the first generation's Christians to do, which is why James in his entire book is delineating this issue. He's saying, listen, you need to shut down the overflow of wickedness. Can you say amen? Amen. All right? Now, he's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. And he's saying, listen, the the basic challenge that you have is there's two potential kinds of overflow that take place in your life, one that's good and one that's less good. (laughs) And so... Uh, to the degree that you, when you are flowing, one, releasing one, you're not in that moment releasing the other. But you want to make sure that in the times of your life, when there are buttons, when there are triggers for the overflow of wickedness, you want to start dealing with that. And let me say, before you know, nobody's going to say, "Oh, I don't have any of that," because I just have to talk to your husband or your wife. <laughs> Hallelujah. Uh, so anyway. The kingdom of God is coming, but it's coming through a people who release life, who know how to connect with things that are virtue and are not, uh, not, not confused about what comes from above and what comes from below. And so this is where the enemy tends to deceive us or slow down our progress, is he, he mimics things that are from above, and, but they're actually from below, and he confuses us so that we don't know the difference. And so this week, during uh, one of the nights, I can't remember which one it was, we were praying, and I read this portion of Scripture as it's, and I'm not going to read up, not Scripture, this portion of this book where it's detailing what the, the army of darkness is about. And so let me give you a little synopsis of it. The Lord spoke to him and said, This is the beginning of the enemy's last day uh, army. This is Satan's ultimate deception. His greatest power of destruction is released when he uses Christians to attack one another. 
Throughout the ages, he has used this army, but never has he been able to use so many for his evil purposes as now. Do not fear, I have an army too. Which army do you want to be in? All right, yeah. We don't want to be uh, co-opted by the enemy to accuse our brothers or our sisters or be a part of the agency, the ministry of accusation. So he says, now you must stand and fight because there is no longer any place to hide from this war. You must fight for my kingdom, for truth, and for those who have been deceived. So we're on this journey where we're trying to figure out, okay, when am I being moved by darkness? Now, there, there's so many directions I can go and it's hard to stay focused. Help me, pray for me. But I, I tell you, there's so many ways we can legitimize the overflow of darkness. But one of the greatest ways is through self-pity. Self-pity is one of the greatest devices the enemy has used to immobilize Christians and to enlist them into service for the kingdom of darkness than anything else. And so I'm going to talk about self-pity today because self-pity is not as innocent as you may think it is. It is a dangerous element, a dangerous uh, hole that we can fall into. And once you start to fall into it, it's hard to get out of it. But listen, there's a Let me share again a little more because what he saw was that the army of the kingdom of darkness, the demons were riding not on horses, but on Christians. You say, why Christians? Aren't they riding on others? Yes, but but Christians have an authority in their words that nobody else does. There's, there's a capacity for impact in the life of Christians that is not there. So you know, deceived Christians are Satan's champions. Did you know that? Anyway, there's a lot to this, but I I want you to read this, uh, hear this. He says, he says, as I watched, as I watched, I realized that these prisoners, okay, now let me, let me share. As they're riding, they're, they're being vomited on and defecated on by these demonic spirits. I mean, what a shocking vision to have, right? But here's the thing. It says, as I watched, I realized that the prisoners thought the vomit uh, of condemnation was the truth of God. Then I understood that these prisoners actually thought they were marching in the army of God. Wow. The only food provided for these prisoners was the vomit from the vultures. Those who refused to eat it simply weakened until they fell. Those who did eat it were strengthened for a time, but but with the strength of the evil one. Then they would weaken unless they drank the waters of bitterness that were constantly being offered to them. After drinking the waters of bitterness, they would begin to vomit on others. And when one of the prisoners began to do this, a demon was waiting to ride uh, on him and climb up on him, and they would move to the front of the divisions. Uh, why, why are you reading this? It's, been, it's Christmas. It's just like, this is a nice season. Can we have something funner? You know, let me tell you, if we can succeed 
in not being making ourselves available to the kingdom of darkness just a little bit, I think that's something well-earned and that's a gain we want, right? Father, I pray right now, God, for a spirit of wisdom, for a spirit of revelation to come down on us today. God, I pray in Jesus' name. Now, here's what I want to say. The waters of bitterness that they were talking about are the waters of self-pity. Self-pity leads to bitterness. It always leads to bitterness. You think, well, how does that happen? Let me explain it. Self-pity, let me go to my notes. Self-pity is basically a kind of entitlement. It is, it is, a, is a part of a belief system. It emanates from a belief system that we are not getting what we deserve. Its basic premise is that injustice is ruling and that the people around us who do not give in to our desires are somehow participating in a, in a system of injustice and therefore they are participating in darkness. At the core of what leads to bitterness is entitlement. I deserve. More relationships have been destroyed by self-pity than anything else. But it's so subtle. It operates in so many different ways. But it begins with a kind of an expectation. I was thinking about this the other day, actually even this morning, and I was remembering a line from a, an episode of a TV show. There's this fellow who, he didn't like Christmas because he's not a gift giver and he doesn't know how to give gifts. So when somebody gave him a gift one day, they said, you haven't given me a gift, you've given me an obligation. <laughs> and I, I remember thinking about that and I thought, well, uh, now that's not true for everybody. It's not true when, when you get a present, some people just receive things and they go, oh, I, I imagine that you gave that because you wanted to give it to me. Because if you're not the kind of person that expects things in return, when you receive something, you don't expect that that person is thinking, now you do the same thing for me. You only think that if you're that kind of person. Hello? You, you only expect back if you give with an expectation to receive. Now, the solution for that is very simple. The solution for that is what God told us. He said, oh, no man, anything but love. And the, and the other part of that is the, the instruction we're given. Whatever you do, do as unto the Lord. Uh, there you go. See, it's liberating in that sense because when I, what I'm doing, and, you know, my wife will tell you, uh, this, that, that when I do things, I generally do, don't do what I don't want to do. I have a very hard time. People have a hard time getting me to do things I don't want to do. Is that true, my wife? Yes. <laughs> well, the flip side of that is, is I'm not filled with a bunch of resentment that people aren't paying me back. Right, because what it means is I'm not doing things for people that I don't want to do. I do things for them that I want to do. And so I never think that you're going to be doing something back for me. Unless you said you're going to do something and then you didn't do it. And that's where I struggle. And I do struggle there. In fact, I had a moment of that this week. A little, little moment really of self-pity and my wife called me on it. She was talking about doing something for somebody and it happened to be the very thing that somebody said they were going to do for me. And, and so I immediately, I want one of those. He said, 
you always make it about you. Well, you caught me in a moment of weakness. But I didn't have to repent. <laughs> because there is freedom being in a place where you owe nobody anything. Wow. Father, I pray right now that all of the... See, expectations are binding cords that we put upon others. And, and what we do is we set ourselves up for disappointment because they don't know they've accrued a debt. Right? And that, that's the problem. Like, you know, I'm the, I'm the pastor here. I'm a minister. People sometimes want to spend time with me. People sometimes do things for me. And I assume they do it because they want to. But here's what happens. If I don't start paying certain people back, they start resenting me. They start getting bitter. And all of a sudden, one day, out of the blue, there's this explosion of an overflow of wickedness. You were never there for me. I, I didn't know I owed you. I didn't know that's what we were doing. If that's what we're doing, then don't do it. I don't want your, your service. I don't want whatever it is you're giving. I can't afford it. If you're giving me an obligation, keep your obligation. If you're giving me a gift, I'll take the gift. I don't want your obligation. Now, I know that's, 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 that's tough for some to swallow. But, uh, but we, need to get, we need to get past this. We need to realize that, that, listen, if we do things because the Lord is moving in us, if you have a grace, a certain grace, we have different graces. Like, we, I love, I love this, the, this, the, the helps ministries. Now, we often substitute helps ministries for servant ministries, but they're not the same. Everybody who serves in the kingdom of God does it with a servant's heart. But not all service is helps ministries. Okay? Uh, helps ministries is a particular sort of tactile-oriented helps gift that, where, you, where you do things that have physically quantifiable advantages to them. Like, you know, shoveling the... This or feeding it, you know, the soup kitchen or working here or working there, doing some things practical. And we need those people. Those people. <laughs> but I was, I want to talk, focus on this self pity because it is a, uh, it is a, it is a significant problem because it masquerades as something else. It masquerades as some kind of legitimate, nostalgic, emotional thing. And, it, and it's, it's like the, the wounded bird syndrome. It, it draws in prey by, by demonstrating its weakness. And uh, let, me, let me define it here for a second. Self-pity is illegitimate illegitimate compassion we have on ourselves which endorses a skewed sense of entitlement. It plays on a secret belief that we are undervalued, underappreciated. But in saying that, it actually betrays a heightened sense of superiority. It actually, it actually is looking for the essential, one of the essential things that drove the Pharisees. It's looking for praise. 
No, 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 I don't want praise. I just want to be appreciated. Well, call, you, call it what you like. All right? Again, is it wrong to appreciate people? No, it's not wrong to appreciate people. But there's an appreciation that's triggered by heaven, and there's an appreciation that's triggered by hell, and they are not the same. They may look on the surface to be the same, but one involves a kind of inappropriate, defiling regard that it really is akin to idolatry. It is really, I want you to bow at my throne. I want you to give me the kind of regard that I believe I need, I deserve. And basically, it, it sets aside God's entire system of justice. It ignores the fact that reward needs to come from God. Yeah, so I can't trust God to get my reward, so I'm going to get it. I'm going to manipulate you into giving me what I think I deserve because God, well, who's doing this? Christians. (laughs) Oh, man. It's like, well, does this ever happen in marriage? Seriously? (laughs) Marriage is the preeminent place that this happens. The closest relationships you have are the ones infused with the greatest kinds of demands. And the reason why divorces happen is because we go into a marriage with a set of expectations that you will feed into all the tributaries of need that I have. That's not what marriage is about. Self-pity is a spirit that traps us into a rarely voiced but firm conviction that we are the victims of injustice. And so we say on the inside, why me, poor me, how come nobody's doing this for me? And when we see others getting something we, do, we don't deserve, we can't celebrate that. We can't enjoy their gift. We can't enjoy their success. We immediately turn around to, when's my turn? That is a destructive, demonic thing. But it's riddled in the fallen nature. It is riddled in the fact that there's something inside of us that, that's a black hole. And that black hole just sucks and sucks and sucks. And the message of the cross is that thing can never be fulfilled. That, that thing can never be fulfilled. There's never enough of the world that can be given to that that is enough. Ask Genghis Khan. Ask Alexander the Great. Ask Stalin. Ask Mao Zedong. Ask Hitler. I mean, these people had amassed masses and masses of wealth, influence, and success, but it still wasn't enough. Why? Because hell has winded its mouth because the desire of man is never full. So the solution to this is not feed it more. It's kill it. Kill it. Kill it. Put it to the cross. Put it to the cross. And so the, the, the journey of us as believers is when we don't think we're getting our just due, we don't make a phone call to the pastor, tell him, you know, that's it, I'm pulling my tie that I'm leaving this church. You know what you do? You turn it around. I, I, 
you realize, you start to realize, man, I've been serving this thing, this voracious appetite inside of me. And, and it, never, it never ends. You think, oh, one day I'd just like people to appreciate me. Yeah, yeah, until you get a taste of it, and then you want it every day. It's, it's the wrong path. It's the, you see, and this is what the reward of heaven, the whole idea of, of leaving and laying down your need for praise, approval, and reward to eternity until you stand before the Lord is the very thing that, that helps you put to death the thing that is stealing from your life. But yeah, but, but, in a, but I'm married, and so, and this is Valentine's Day. But, but yes, but in this, I remember one of my kids, they were difficult at the best times. But on their birthday, they were the worst. You've ever heard of bridezillas? You know why bridezillas exist? Because we have legitimized that on this day, it's all about you. And so we have, we've enhanced this thing. All of your desires, all of the images of your princess existence that you had, this one day, you can have it. <laughs> that in the whole rest of your life, we try to, that, you know, you dial that down, dial it down. But on your wedding day, you can have it all. Or on your birthday. And so what we have, we have these moments where we legitimize, today I can open up the aperture of the gate of hell inside of me. (laughs) I don't want to spoil your birthday. (laughs) But enhanced expectation does not improve our experience. It diminishes it. Self-pity is not an ally, it's an enemy. It's not a friend, it's a foe. It's not an advocate, it's building a case against you. Realize this. Self-pity may pretend to be aligned with you, but it is not. Matthew 16, there's this, and I've preached on it before, but you've you got to get this cemented into your, your, your system of thought. There's two examples there of this thing, of the release of the kingdom of God and the release of the kingdom of darkness, and they both happen with the same guy. It's Peter. And in one moment, he says something that comes from above. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This came from above. This came from my heaven. This is revelation. This is what I'm building my kingdom on. And in the next moment, Peter is doing something else that he thinks is equally valid. He believes it to be valid. Okay. And yet Jesus turns to him and says, get thee behind me, Satan. That's a little harsh, isn't it, Jesus? What was it? What was the catalyst for this thing? When Jesus started saying, I'm going to go to the cross and die, and Peter said, whoa, 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 whoa. How is this going to affect me? That, what is that? That is the essence of self-pity. That is, that is what, what are you talking about? Don't make this about you, Peter. As soon as you make it about you, you opened up a gate there. Yesterday you opened up a great gate. This is not so great. Where does it start? 
When's my turn? What about me? I need you. This is, it's not subtle. It's not innocent. It's not unharmful. It is, you see, in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, things either open up the one or they open up the other. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. And it's not deep, dark, obvious darkness, obvious evil that is the kingdom of darkness. It is simply self. Just self. Man, if we could get this, you would solve so many marital tensions, so many relational issues. And God has given us and uh, descriptions of the characteristics of the one versus the other all the time. You can go to James chapter 3 if you want one. But it's interesting because Matthew 16, 23, Jesus turns to Peter in this moment and he says, Get thee behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. What does that mean? Is that Satan the one described by Jesus as being like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour is going around looking for what it is you think you deserve. Right? Not to to help you, but to get an opportunity to, to align you with himself. The reason he comes along and he finds you saying, Oh, it's my birthday, but nobody came. It's my birthday, but I didn't get anything I wanted. How how come nobody ever thinks of me? Satan listened. Ooh, I can see what you want. Yeah, poor you. They are so mean. There's no justice in this world. They call themselves Christians. Waters of bitterness not given to liberate you, not given to lift you up, not given to to bring you to a place of functionality, but to demoralize, destroy, and make you a captive of the kingdom of darkness. Now, I'm fortunate in this sense. I did not have a mother of that sort, a mother who who created that sense of entitlement in me. Uh, my mother seemed to do the very opposite. I mean, when we got a call from the principal or the teacher or some other adult, my mother did not run to my defense. Oh, no, not my Johnny. <laughs> not my Marky. <laughs> no, she was not so deluded. <laughs> she thought nine times out of ten, yeah, he did something. And, and so she was not there to protect me against the injustices of the world and to tell me, Mark, that chances are, you know, you need, you, I, I'm, I'm there to fight for you because you've done nothing wrong. And I'm going to be the buffer between you and the world. My mom never did that. And so when I had self-pity, I was not reinforced in it. I was disciplined out of it. <laughs> So anyway, as a consequence, I didn't, that wasn't a go-to for me. It was, it just never happened. I just, I mean, I just didn't experience that until a certain time in my life when I started doing a lot of drugs. 
And I found myself, and I won't give you the whole, the whole thing. I had a lot of self-indulgence, but it didn't come out particularly in pity. Moping, kind of, you know. Came out in aggression take. <laughs> so here I was in this moment, and I remember I was living in Calgary, and uh, something came on me. It, uh, it was so powerful it, it saturated me with a, with a dark, uh, well, self-pity is a word, but it's, it's, self-pity doesn't seem to do it justice. It was an intense, an intense infatuation with myself, and I badly wanted the world to pay attention to my pain, my emotional pain. And so I was in the basement, and I had a, a, a box cutter, and I began to cut my arm because I, I, I began to feel like, like if I do this, they will have to take notice. And I remember I'm right in the middle of it, and I made a little nick, and I thought, what are you doing? What are you doing? And the voice of wisdom came into my, my, that room, and made it clear to me what this really was. And I remember thinking, I- I've stolen on acid. And I thought, this is stupid. This is stupid. Like, it's, it, is, it is such an insane proposition that I'm going to try to get the world to pay attention to me by fabricating an emergency. But immediately, here's what happened. I saw, then what? Like, what are you going to do next week? How are you going to top this? Because I I just knew there was no satisfying this thing. How do you know that? (laughs) Well, praise God. There was a foundation from my, my mom in her, even, she wasn't even saved, in her unwillingness to tolerate self pity in her kids. She didn't indulge that. When we're moping, of course, like, get up. You know, <laughs> act like a man. That's what Paul said to the, I think the Corinthians. Act like men. Right? So I overcame it in that moment. But for some of us, it's not so easy to just, because we've been, we've been doing this for a lifetime. And there's a temptation to create structures around us where the world feeds our lagging sense of worth our heightened and superior inflated sense of entitlement and we create systems that legitimize it we say well yeah I'm, I'm not generally this however so I pray right now that all the ways that you've done that all the ways where you've used service where you've used uh, what, what you've done for others what was told you is the right way in marriage where you've been told you, you, you read books all the time that tell you what your wife or your husband ought to be doing for you? <laughs> right? Come on. And, and so you can legitimize your demands in the hopes that this carnal relationship will fulfill a, a need that only God can fulfill. That in this sense is... Is destroying you. Now I'm going to finish. I want to talk about Elijah for a minute because Elijah was a great man, but Elijah fell victim to this very thing. Did you know that? 
if you turn to 1 Kings 18, 1 Kings 18, uh, there's, there's two parts to it, and I won't be able to read it all. But in the first part, you know the story, right? You know the story of the confrontation on Mount, Mount, uh, Mount Carmel. Uh, verse 36 of 18 says this, and it came to pass at the time of offering that Elijah the prophet came near and said, and he starts to say, now I want you to listen very closely what he said. Now, this was, a, this was on the one hand, this was an amazing victory for the kingdom of heaven. But I want you to see there's a, there's a language that fills this, that, that, that betrays the weakness of Elijah and something that was developing in his life. And you're going to see that it not only led to uh, his downfall, but it led to his spiritual dismissal from service. Why am I saying this? It's because we are trying to build a people who are eligible for promotion in the kingdom of heaven, who can walk into the camp of the enemy and be untouched, unmoved by any of those, any of those things that would assuage our devotion, cause us to be pulled into some affection for what Satan is offering. This is what he says. He says, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant. Was that really necessary? I am your servant. And I have done these things at your word. Hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord you have turned their hearts back to you again. Anyway, you think, well, that's, that's fairly innocent. You know, it's a little, you know, it, it could just be the way the language was situated, except for what happens next. Have you ever heard the saying, it's a Bible verse, it says that pride comes before a fall. Pride comes before a fall. You have this absolute amazing victory here, of course. Elijah is instrumental. Uh, and Elijah is, is unique in, in, in the Bible. He's a unique prophet. He did things. He was dedicated in a way. He served God in a way that others did not. But that did not guarantee that it was perfection. Okay? And everything that's written, it's written for our example. And in this case, it's like saying, it doesn't matter how many successes you have. You're still vulnerable if you if you indulge certain ways of thinking. So basically, where did, it, where did it begin? Where did the fall begin? The superiority. When he, when, when he begins to mock the, the, what, what the others are doing, what the worshipers of Baal are doing. Remember what his mocking? Mocking can never be done in humility. Okay? It just, it just can't be done because it assumes that we are the, the reason for, for the polar opposite. If we're putting someone down, we are taking responsibility and ownership of why we're not that. There's a pride element in that. So anyway, what happens is they have a great victory. Everything's turned around. The drought is broken. But then Ahab, it says in chapter 19, verse 1, tells Jezebel all that Elijah has done and also how he executed the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah and said, so let 
the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. You think, whatever. Right? I mean, I just had a divine confrontation. Fire came from heaven. Miraculous. Like, what do I have to fear with you? But pride is, is one of those things that weakens us. It creates a gap in our armor, and we begin to become vulnerable. So the next thing that happens is Elijah falls headlong into a deep, dark place. I have to tell you this, that whenever we fall into a deep, dark place, it's not... It, 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 we've prepared that place. We've nurtured that place. We've set that place aside. We've made, we've made allowances for that place. Okay? What, you, you cannot fall into something that you not have habitually practiced. It's like, you know, I don't know what happened. I was just in this situation, and next thing you know, I'm committing adultery with somebody. Well, no, no, that didn't just happen. You nurtured thoughts that led to that along the line. And a lot of those thoughts, men are born of self-pity. A lot of the people that struggle with pornography struggle with pornography because of self-pity. It is, it is I, I, des- I don't deserve whatever I'm getting in the world, so I'm going to indulge myself. Anyway, that's a whole other message. But self-pity is a gateway into our lives that steals more than we can imagine. So Elijah runs off. Uh, He goes a day's journey into the wilderness and came and he sat under a, what's it called, a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die. Suicidal thoughts always come out of self-pity. Deep, dark depression. It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree until an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. He said, Listen, you've been, you've been eating the wrong stuff here, Elijah. You've been eating and drinking from the fountain of bitter waters, self-pity. You need proper sustenance. Then he looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on coals and a jug of water so he ate and drank now verse verse 9 further down the Lord speaks to him and look what the first thing he says to him he says what are you doing here Elijah it's very interesting because down in 13 later on he also says the same thing suddenly a voice came and said what are you doing here Elijah When God asks you, what are you doing here? (laughs) You're not supposed to be there. And you should start to wonder how you got there. Because the, the path from where you started to where you are is very real. And it's, it's, it's built with justifications and a rationale that you allowed to transpire. So if you find yourself in a, in adultery, if you find yourself bound to pornography, if you find yourself in bitterness and accusing, you got there by a bunch of steps that you deliberately chose. And you may have inherited a disposition from somebody from someplace that that was a family trade, it was an iniquity that was passed down to you from your parents and your grandparents, and that may be. But the beauty of the kingdom of heaven is that we're meant to change our destinies. 
We're meant to be somebody different than our fathers and our forefathers. What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, so we know the experience he has, but here in verse 14, the Lord says to him, what are you doing, Elijah? And here's what he says. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed the prophets. Sound like self-pity? I, you know, I'm working real hard here, God. I'm, I'm dedicated to you. I don't know anybody who's dedicated as I'm dedicated. I mean, I, I went to Bible college. I, you know, I lived in poverty. I served on the mission field. I, you know, I, I, I went to India. I, I, I laid this down. I laid that down. Da, 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 da. I deserve better than this. Well, you were on the path to getting a lot until you started demanding these things. If you want your reward now, okay. Well, this is, this is the last thing he says, and this is, this is the horrendous place that he's gotten to. Listen to this. They've killed your prophets, and I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. I alone am left. All your people are unfaithful. Nobody did what they were supposed to except me. I did all these things, and what does it get me? Yeah, look at this great victory I had yesterday. And now this woman, she's trying to kill me. Elijah, what are you doing? Stand up. Like, don't you know the resources that are in your hand? Like, what, what happened here? How did this overcome you? What took place to get you from a place where you're, you're seeing the, the, the entire repentance and turn of the nation to the place where you're moping in a little corner on a broom chain and say, woe is me. But not only that, you've turned the waters of bitterness that have been growing inside of you into accusation. Nobody else did what they were supposed to. So what does the Lord do? He, he, he tells them to do a bunch of things. Included in them is this. He says, basically, anoint Elisha in your place. I remember hearing this for the first time, and I, when I heard it from the guy who was preaching, it was like God said, yeah, thank you for your service. You're done. And he finishes with saying, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Your self-pity has made you elite amongst a company of one. You've begun to believe yourself to be something you're not, superior, you've indulged a sense of, I should have been rewarded in who knows what ways. But certainly this that I got is not what I deserve. Self-pity. The chains of self-pity, the enticements, the voice of self-pity that comes and says to you, yeah, let me affirm your indulgence of yourself. Let's push you a little deeper into that dark hole. I had another moment of self-pity. I only had three or four of them, so I can remember I was in Bible college. Honestly, it's not it's not something that would overcome me. But I remember one night, I was I was in a situation, and uh, 
I, I, I don't want to share the whole story, but basically I went to, wanted to go out for pizza with some people and everybody left before I had a chance to choose who I wanted to go with. <laughs> and that was the problem is, is I was being very selective in who I wanted to be with because, you know, self of, sense of self-importance. Before I knew it, everybody's gone. And then I went, I saw one couple that were left, but they were a couple. But that was okay. Three's not a, not a problem. And then they made it clear that they didn't want a third party with them. And I took that as, oh, woe's me. And I went back to my dorm room and I was sitting there under my broom tree, <laughs> licking my wounds and saying, how come I don't have any friends? I mean, it, it was a lie from top to bottom. I made this happen because I actually had an invitation, but it wasn't the favorite invitation. So I, I said, wait here, we'll see. I'll take that offer if there's nothing better coming. But then I missed. Anyway, I'm sitting there. Here's the thing. I know. I know. But it feels, it's so hard now to get out of it. Right? How many times have you nurtured an idea that somebody should have done something for you and they didn't? that's hardened your heart and begun to create bitterness toward that person. And I knew what I needed to do. I needed to get up off my butt, get out of my room, go find somebody that didn't have friends at all and be their friend. That's what I needed to do. I was being slapped on the cheek. I needed to turn the other cheek. I needed to make myself vulnerable, do the last thing I wanted to do, which is pour my life out. I wanted somebody to pour into me. And the Lord said, I want you to be free. The cross is a call to the opposite that enslaving passions push you to do. Freedom is found when you can't be yoked, particularly by self-pity. Self-pity is the core thing. It is the greatest catalyst for self-consideration of anything around you. It causes you to view every situation, every struggle, every problem, you against the world, and creates an, a- an imaginary construct that makes you the victim and everybody else oppressors. And Satan will whisper in your ear every day to validate that. And here, worse, and if you've actually had injustice in your life, it's even harder to break out of that. But you know what? You have to. You have to. You have to. Oh, it's because I'm this. No, it isn't. It's because I'm a woman. It's because I'm short. It's because I can't sing. It's because I'm not married to the right family in this church. It's because I don't da-da-da-da. Whatever it is, don't indulge self-pity. It's not your friend. It's not your ally. It's not your advocate. It doesn't defend you. It's seeking your captivity. If we could do this, it's amazing the litany of things that we could escape from. The chains, the bonds. It's amazing the things that God could bring us into. The, how it postures us for promotion, elevation, authority, and usefulness in the kingdom of God cannot be quantified. It's the foundation. Death to self 
is the foundation of all kingdom resurrection. So, Father, I pray today, Lord, that you would release to us the spirit of wisdom, the knowledge of causes that would cause us to, in the moments when we are being overwhelmed by woe is me kind of thinking, that we'll realize that what's cozying up to us is not the Holy Spirit. This is not the anointing. This is not God flaming the fan, the, the flaming, fanning the flames of self-pity. It is demonic spirits that we will not align ourselves with. I pray in Jesus' name. It's not easy, but if we do this, we position ourselves for something wholly different as we move forward. Oh, Father, I pray right now Young men and young women, young ladies who are looking for a prince to come into their lives to fix everything, and young, young men who want the indulgence of a beautiful lass, a princess that, well, will just come into this relationship. I'll stroke you, you stroke me. I'll, I'll be there for you to tell you, be the buffer against the world. This does not make for a healthy relationship. Father, deliver us, I pray. I want to be free. I absolutely want to be free. More than anything, I want to be free. And God wants you to be free. I want to be free myself. I want you to be free. And more than that, God has provided for our freedom if we'd only do the things that he told us to do. That night... Before I stepped out of that room and found somebody, I repented and I worshiped God. And the hardest thing to do when self-indulgence come on, comes on you is to worship somebody else because you're busy worshiping yourself. Those impulses really are create a kind of an idolatry where you have a hard time doing anything but regarding yourself in that moment. Even Samuel... When God was being rejected, he made it about him, and God said to him very specifically, they didn't reject you, Samuel. In other words, Samuel, if, if you make this about you, you can't be my agent in this, in, this, in this situation. It's not about you. God, I pray you forgive us right now. We say, Father, in Jesus' name, we will turn. Say that to yourself right now. I will turn. I will turn away from self-pity. My heart is yours. This is not something an altar call can, can, can satisfy or fix. It has to be followed by a series of decisions. Parents, we can't decide for our kids, but we can help them right now by not stroking, not indulging self-pity. Let's decide today. And if you want to decide by stepping forward, and coming to the front and lifting your hands saying, God, I worship you, you could do that. Or you can do it right where you're standing. 
but there's a significant turnaround that God wants to bring to our lives and hearts right now. We will not be vessels of bitterness anymore. We will not be vessels of accusation. We will not be vessels that trumpet injustice and demand vengeance. Just before we close, I want to read just a couple of passages. Mark was sharing out of Matthew 16, and he shared the scripture verse that basically said, get behind me, Satan, but the one that follows that says this. It says, then Jesus said to the disciples, if any of you wants to be my followers, you must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross, and follow me. If you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you give it up your life for me, you will find true life. I was also reading something out of Luke earlier today, and Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. And sometimes when we read the way Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, it comes across as if he's just angry with them or frustrated. In fact, he makes this statement. He says, how terrible it will be for you experts in the religious law for you hide the key to knowledge from the people. You don't encounter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering it. You know, when you read this, you sometimes wonder, what Mark said today, is it a message of condemnation? It's not a message of condemnation. Jesus' point is not to condemn the religious leaders. His point wasn't to condemn his disciples. His point was a message of freedom because he is more interested in freedom than anything else, than our comforts, the very things that we are used to. So he will bring a message that will actually rub us in a way to expose the fact that we have these things within us because he's interested in freedom. And so, Father God, today I pray this. For each one in this room, we wouldn't walk out of here feeling that we have been exposed, that we have had an area of our life touched that hurts, but that today we will feel and know that we have experienced a message of freedom. And so, Father, I pray right now for this area in our life where it's self-pity or whatever it is, these things that we grab onto, we pray right now in the name of Jesus for freedom, for freedom, for freedom. We pray that freedom to fall upon each person in this room. We pray for that freedom to fall upon you at home, in your rooms. In Jesus' name, can we say amen to that? Amen. So bless you online. Bless you in this room. If this is an area where you struggle, I'm telling you, fight for it. Fight for it. There is a freedom to be had if you will go for it. Bless you in Jesus' name.